Father, we ask that you would help us to remember uh, the lessons that we glean here on Sunday mornings. And even though it's a monologue, Lord, you have spoken. And that monologue can be instructive. It can bring life. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to take it to heart and use these lessons from those who have gone through the trials long before us that we would not fall into the same traps, make the same mistakes. And we know that these stories have led to the ultimate story, the salvation that you bring. Help us to always be thankful and appreciative of that. In Jesus' name, amen. There were four people who were instrumental in this world in changing it. Now, you might say, well, there's a lot more than four. But yeah, these particular people did something extraordinary. On July 26th, 1833, the abolition of slavery bill passed its third reading in the House of Commons. A messenger rushed to the house of William Wilberforce. They told him that slavery in the British colonies would finally be abolished. Just three days later, on the 29th of July, William Wilberforce died. Now, he gave his life to this. He had a conversion experience, and he was in the House of Commons, and he thought after he got saved, radically so, that he should leave the house. And he was encouraged by a fellow believer not to leave and because he persevered and it took years and years and years because there was resistance from those in the house of commons who used slaves in their trade that's why it took so long but he was instrumental in this about that same time in 1863 there was a proclamation recorded on january 1st by a publication named Courier and Ives. And it read, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof, thereby freeing all the slaves in this country, being the United States. And that was Abraham Lincoln who did that. If you go back a little farther to Moses, Moses freed the slaves. And according to the Jewish calendar, that was in the year 2448. If we used our calendar, it would have been in the year 1,312 B.C. I have seen it written also that it's 1,345, but we're not going to mess with the details. Moses delivered between 2 and 3 million Jews from slavery under Pharaoh. And there is one more. Can you guess who that last person is who has freed the slaves? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ freed us. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus also said in John chapter 8, verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. He died to set us free. And so that is the ultimate bondage that we were all under The human race, every one of us, was sold into slavery or sold into sin. And Paul reminded 
the Roman church in Romans chapter 6 verse 17. But thanks be to God that through, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin. You have become slaves to righteousness. And by this freedom, how do we get this freedom? It's by the truth. And the truth will set you free. That's in John chapter 8 verse 32. If you don't know the truth, then who is truth? Jesus is truth. If you don't know Jesus, then you are not free. You are still sold into sin. Now, the truth is, again, not just an idea or a concept. You don't go and just study and get some information, and that information saves you. It is a person that is the truth, that is Jesus Christ, and he is the one that saves us. He died for us to redeem us from the curse which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire, and to consecrate us, to set us apart for himself. That's why we got saved. He wants a people for himself. And this is the only way in which he could accomplish it. And unfortunately, most of the people on the planet Earth that have ever lived will not make it. Just as a side note, there were two to three million people that exited Egypt. How many entered the promised land of those two to three million? Two. two. That is correct. Only two out of two to three million entered the promised land. And they didn't enter in because of the bickering, the complaining, their lack of faith. They just didn't want to follow God. They did everything they could to kind of get out. When God provided them bread, they complained about that. So God brought them quail and they ate so much of it, it came out their noses. And it was just a miserable existence for those people. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go through the message here. But God instructed Moses to consecrate every firstborn male and every firstborn that was to open the womb. In Exodus chapter 13, which we are currently residing in, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Now, the cost of redeeming the firstborn, and remember, this was done because of the Passover, that the firstborn in every household that did not have the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel around the frame, they lost the firstborn in that house, including the animals that were there. But this is called, and there's actually a name for it in Hebrew, it's called pinyan habin. And you have to pay five shekels or five silver coins is what you have to pay in order to redeem your child. And they say that what happens is you bring the child to the synagogue today and they go through this ritual and they say, which would you rather redeem? Would you rather redeem the five shekels or would you rather redeem your firstborn? And of course, most everybody says, I think everybody says, I'll take the firstborn. You can have the shekels. And so you have to give shekels. And this is where part of the idea has come in for the Jewish nation. If you just give money, that is a substitute for the sacrifice. And they have taken away the sacrifice. The old covenant for the Jews is still in force. They're still supposed to be sacrificing in Jerusalem, at the temple, and they are not doing that. And so to make amends, to kind of switch it around, to make it okay for all the Jews, what they have done is constructed their own way to worship. 
and you just give a little money and that's okay and we can deal with that and just be nice to everybody and follow the Ten Commandments and it's all good, you'll be saved. After all, you're a Jew. You come from the line of Abraham. And God says, no, that's not it. And so they took what God gave them and they transformed it into something different and we always run that danger ourselves. Now these Jews... You know, the lineage of the Jews, it goes back thousands of years. For us in the United States, what are we? We're a bunch of mutts, right? We're not a pure lineage over here. There are some that are. But for the most part, we have become what we learned in elementary school, the melting pot. We are no longer doing that so much either. We are balkanizing ourselves. We are becoming different races and people groups and just making our own little enclaves. And that is not what has made this country great. The thing that has made this country great is our unification. And that was the downfall of the Jews as well, is they were not unified behind God and what he wanted to do. But God gave them the instruction that they are supposed to redeem the firstborn, and he wanted to save the firstborn. Take that child and consecrate that child to God himself. And this was during the midst from 1550 B.C. to 300 B.C., There were these Phoenicians in the area of Canaan, also known as the Canaanites up there, and they were sacrificing their firstborn to the god Molech. What they would do, they had these temples and they would glorify the god of sex and then people would get pregnant, women would get pregnant, and they would take their firstborn to the temple and they would offer their firstborn as a sacrifice to Molech, believing that God would therefore bless the rest of the children and the family, the parents, with prosperity. That he, Molech, would give them money, which would bring power, which would bring comfort. And so how they would do this is they fashioned these iron sculptures. The iron sculptures, they could be big or small, but they were in such a way that that they were usually kneeling down with the hands forward, the palms facing up, and sometimes it would be almost like a slide, and then there would be a hole in the torso area here. And what they would do, they'd place this iron god that had the body of a human and a head of a bull. They would stick it into the fire, heat it up red hot, and then they would place the child on the hands and the child would roll into the belly or they'd place the child in the belly completely alive. This was taking place during the same time that God was redeeming the firstborn. And a person that he did not completely fall into this, at least as far as we know, but he was doing things that he should not do was King Solomon. And he was told not to multiply wives and he ended up doing that. He ended up multiplying Wives, when he was specifically told in Scripture, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses, and of course he did that, Solomon did that, for himself to make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And he did all of those things. He got 
hundreds of wives on Valentine's Day. I think one wife is enough for any man on the face of the earth. But he had hundreds, and then he had hundreds of concubines as well. I dare say he probably didn't even know their names. There were so many of them out there. And if you go to Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, there are Solomon's stables. He had horses and horses, just thousands of horses everywhere. And if you went to the temple, the whole thing was covered in gold, and he had a temple treasury. He was storing up silver and gold. And God said, don't do it. And he was warned ahead of time before the king ever came into, the kingship ever came into fruition. Well, he decided because of all these wives, he was going to build high places for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same thing for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So he brought all these women in, these foreign women. God said, they'll lead your heart astray, and they did. And he ended up backsliding. And it wasn't until the end of his life that he ended up writing the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that he came to the conclusion that you need to find happiness in what you do here on earth and serve God. That's it. Everything else is vanity because everything else goes away. Now, in verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast, which, again, we understand to be evil, or representative of evil. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your forefathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe the ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son... I do this because of what the Lord did for me. When I came out of Egypt, this observance will be for you. And you see the word like? You should probably highlight that word. The observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Now I want to go back. In this verse, verse 9, it says this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Now, the Jews have done this literally. They haven't just reminded themselves like if you put it on your hand it's a reminder to you if it's on your forehead it's a reminder to those who are around you and they can ask you why do you have it on your forehead and you know it's because it's on your hand and it's talking about the ordinance or the law of the lord you're supposed to keep it and it's supposed to be on your lips now because the word like is used that's called a simile it's not to be taken literally but john if you would show the first picture there the first picture we have here, these are called phylacteries. If you go to Israel, you will see these by the Western Wall. Now, in these little boxes on vellum paper, they will write the scriptures and they put them in there. And then they put them on their hand and on their forehead. Next picture. 
This is how they're to do it. And if you go there, you will see this little box at the western wall, and it's for the morning prayers. They stick it up there because this particular passage says, write them on your forehead and on your hand. And it shows you how to wrap them around. And, of course, that box really isn't on the hand. It's on the bicep is where it is. But because of extension and the wrapping going all the way around, well, it's considered part of it because of the rope. Just another side note here. In Israel... What they will do, they were told they couldn't walk so far on the Sabbath. And so what they did is they put a rope around Jerusalem. Well, if they wanted to walk a little farther, they just extended the rope. And they said, this is how we're going to do it. And so they come up with all these ideas how they can actually break the commandments or modify them to suit themselves and not do the spirit of the law. Okay, so the next picture. That's what you will see. This, uh, I don't know if he's a rabbi or just a Jew on the left-hand side here. He's wearing that phylactery on his head. And it's because of this particular passage. And there's a little scripture in there. And you'll see them as you go up to the wall. They will have this prayer shawl over them. They will have these tassels hanging off of their belt. If they are uh, Hasidic Jews, they will wear those tassels all the time. But then the prayer shawl also will have tassels hanging off of it. And then you see this young man right here. With this arm, he, it is being wrapped by this gentleman who is helping them when they come over to Israel. Now, when I went to Israel one time, I had been there before. And when you go to the Western Wall, and this is the Western Wall on the right-hand side that you see. You go up to the Western Wall, or some people call it misleadingly so, the Wailing Wall. And what the people will do, you have these little... I don't think you can... Oh, you can see it back on the left-hand side here, that little piece of paper in that man's hand. He has this little lectern or little writing stand, and he writes out a prayer, and he folds up the prayer, and he puts it in the rocks, the stones that are in the wall back there. And every once in a while, I don't know if it's every day or every week, they will go and they will collect all of these prayers, and they put them in a little box, and then they go bury them, is what they do. They never destroy these prayers. And so when the Jews go to the wall, they pray. And the reason they go to the wall is because that is the foundation wall that sets the temple mount in place where the temple is or the temple was. The temple will be there again, according to Scripture. And so that's as close as they can get without stepping on the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. Now, when I went there to Israel, I decided I didn't want to wear, it looks like a French fry paper tray that you put on your head. And that's what you wear when you go up to the wall. So I decided when I was going there, I was going to buy a yarmulke. A yarmulke is a little, sometimes knit, sometimes it's satin, whatever. If you see an Orthodox Jew or an observant Jew, they will put this on their head on the Sabbath, on Saturday. If you went up to the college area, there is a, a synagogue up there. There's also one off of, um, it's, I think it's Navajo Road. There's a place up there. And you'll see the Jews walking to the synagogue, and they have this on their head. So I had this in my back pocket, and I wanted to go up to the wall and pray. And so as I'm walking up there, I whip this thing out of my back pocket, and I put it on my head. All of a sudden, I hear this, you! And I go, who was that? I didn't hear that. And I'm going to keep walking. He goes, you! And I, I see this guy pointing at me, a guy that looked just like that guy right there. And he's pointing at me like this. 
He goes, you, are you a Jew? And I mean, everybody's going, what is, what is going on here? And I go, no. <laughs> you know, and I, I just want to go to the wall. That's all I want to do is go to the wall. He wanted me to come over and wrap my arm and put this phylactery on my head. And I just go, so be warned. If you ever go to the Western Wall and you whip out your own yarmulke, they're probably going to say, you, are you a Jew? And they will wrap your hand and they will put it on your head. I've learned my lesson. I'll probably wait to put that on until I get to the front. And you have to be observant. Even if you're not a Jew, you have to put that on your head. And so the Jews, what they have done is they have gone to the nth degree. The only problem with this, according to the scripture, can you see this guy's lips? I don't see any scripture written on his lips. And it says that in this particular passage. It says not only write them on the forehead, it says, and let me repeat it to you again. Verse 9, this observance will be for you like a sign in your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. Okay, so they have taken this and they said, well, you're being more observant. You're being more spiritual if you do these things. Now, we are not without guilt in this as well. Uh, For instance, I have been told by a family member, why don't we have a cross up on the top of the building out here? You know, it's really not a church if you don't have a cross. You need that cross up there. And for years, we didn't have this cross right here. We had that. And that came later. That wasn't up here right away when we moved into the building. So people would walk in and they go, where's your cross? Your cross needs to be around here. Of course, that's in First Speculations chapter 6, verse 16, right? That you have to have a cross inside of a church. And so we become familiar with these things. And not just us, but if you go to the um, Lutheran church, they have this altar that is up there. It's a big stone, usually a marble table that is up there. And they have five crosses on it up there. And those five crosses are meant to remind you of Jesus being pierced in his hands, in his side, and in his feet. And so you have one on each corner and you have one in the middle. And it's just a way to remind. And the Catholic Church has lots of things like this. You have the stations of the cross. You have these prayer books. And and so we modify what God has done in order to suit ourselves to make us feel more spiritual. And that's not necessary at all. It's like if you come to church without your Bible now, are you spiritual, more spiritual, less spiritual? And some people will say, well, I have it electronically on my phone. And, of course, you look at that all the time and don't check any texts while you're doing that in the midst of church, right? You don't check any websites. You don't check the score of the ball game as you're looking at that particular thing. And you see that we, we just do this to suit ourselves is what takes place. And so the Jews aren't the only ones who are guilty here. But we are guilty as well, and we don't want to make this mistake to the point where we substitute what God has instructed us to do with something we have concocted ourselves and made for ourselves. Now, going on with this, these people were (coughs) instructed to instruct their children And I've mentioned this previous. There are some lessons here. We are to teach these truths to our children and grandchildren, just as the Jews were to remember and talk about the deliverance 
of God, we are to make every effort to communicate our faith to the next generation. One of the difficult things I believe is that we are supposed to do is to share our faith. To actually go and tell somebody what you have done. Um, I remember doing this and I was just as nervous as I could be. I went, I would go evangelize my father because he was never in church, but he said he walked forward when he was 13. I would talk to my mother because she took us to church when she was young, but she didn't, when she was older, she never went. And I'm saying, you got to follow Jesus Christ. He's the way of salvation. And both of them, my mom would turn to me and say, don't worry, honey, I'm saved. It's, it's okay. And then I turned to my brother's. My one brother went to me, he says, oh, you think you're holier than now because you go to church. Oh, no, no, you're just missing it. You need the salvation. My younger brother said, whatever. And then my older brother said, well, you told me I'm going to hell. And he walks up, and he, I did. And he walks up, and he, he goes out of the house. I tried to tell my whole family, you need to get saved. That's the only way to make it out of this life alive. And you will be awake forever, either in torment and punishment or in bliss in the presence of God. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'd tell them about the mark of the beast. I'd tell them about what's coming. I'd tell them about the Jews getting back into their land, how that's a prophecy fulfilled and the Bible is 25% prophecy. And you need to pay attention to what it says because it has become true. It has been fulfilled and there's more prophecies to be fulfilled. And if you don't do this, you know, I'm going to be the only one up there. And you guys need to be there too. And of course, you know, I have one brother now. He's serving as an elder in a church. Uh, but the other two brothers, one was a complete atheist. And then he moved over to an agnostic state. And my other brother, he started going to the Catholic church. But I don't think he goes anymore because of his wife was going to the Catholic church. My parents never returned to the church. And I just felt, you know, I got to tell everybody that I can possibly come across whether it's in my business, in work, or if it's personal. I've told you the story before about how we would go skiing with the youth. And we'd take the youth up skiing and we'd get on the chairlifts. And remember what I told you? I, you have a captive audience on the chairlift. And so I would turn to them and say, hey, how you doing? You go to church? And it's like, oh, brother, some of them went, oh, great. Who's on the chair with me? And the longer the lift, the better it was. You know, and they, and one guy would be a Buddhist. Oh, we're kind of like you. I'm, no, yeah, I don't think you quite are like us. You know, I, I think you need to get saved. And I'd give them the gospel right there. And I'd thank them for their time and listening to me. And that's what we would do. And a couple of us who we, we'd go, when we'd get down to the lift line to get back on, we had purposely, and if you don't know this, you could either go with somebody or you could call single. And if you got single, you got into the single line and everybody else was paired up. And they'd pair up everybody to go on a two-man or a four-man chairlift or a three-man, whatever it was. And so I'd always go single. And if I got in the middle, if it was a three-man chairlift, perfect. You know, and I'd be able to turn to the left and turn to the right, and I'd give them the gospel. It's like, you guys need to know this stuff. And so I used the ski trips as an evangelistic outreach, and it was great. And I got all kinds of reactions to that. But God even told the Israelites, tell your children, tell the people who are around you, open up your mouth. Have you not gone and told your family members what you have done? I would say, if you haven't, make a date. Call them up, write a note, and say, hey, 
I want to come over. I want to have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. I want to take you to lunch. And I want to tell you something. Now, at this point, if you haven't done that, and you're going, oh, he's going to make me do that? Oh, I'm getting so nervous about why should I do that? They know I go to church. No, give them the gospel. Spell it out for them. You can go all the way back here to the Jews, and you can begin with that, with Passover, because you have the information now. You know all about it and how it pointed to the Lamb of God, that we are all sinners and we are all saved by grace. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to do the personal evangelism. Don't think that it's relegated to the pastor or somebody who's an evangelist. We are the ones that are supposed to do it. Matter of fact, I believe that we're supposed to reach out to those who are kind of reluctant and say, come to church with me. I want to make sure that you hear this message. And I'll pick you up. And I'll take you to lunch afterwards. And I'll buy. And I just want to make sure you have the gospel. And if we're doing that, people will get it. They'll never be able to turn to us and say, you never told me. Why did you never tell me? That's only our responsibility. Our only responsibility is just to tell them. It's not our responsibility in the words of a salesman to close the deal. You don't have to close the deal. You just have to give the gospel. Now, you can ask them if they'd like to pray to receive Jesus Christ. That's okay. You, you want to do that at the end. And lead them in a prayer and say, just repeat after me. And, and if they're real nervous about that, just you know, kind of walk them through it. But they need to get saved. And then after that, to be a disciple. Because there's this dichotomy. People get saved and they don't become disciples, which is a tragedy. Because their life is full of less joy than it that, could be there and this is part of the reason too the jews get together and this is a time of fellowship the passover meal it's where the family gets together when i was in israel they we went to a hotel and on the sabbath we were there at the hotel they have these large rooms downstairs where the families get together and they play these board games and the kids are all there and the parents are there and they're just having a great time and they eat a meal together it's a wonderful time of fellowship and that's what we experience as christians as well and so this is why god told them make this generational don't keep it to yourself communicate to your entire family your testimony and your faith also these jews what they did is they were concentrating on the outside and i'm going to kind of give this a title do not let outward haughtiness replace inward holiness they thought that by putting on the phylacteries that you guys saw up here that it shows that they are observant that they are spiritual for instance if i started wearing a robe up here a black robe some people would walk in and go whoa pastor it's like no you're supposed to be a slave that's what you are a a, a, like a deacon a deacon is a servant right you are supposed to prostrate yourself not literally but before the people in service the greatest in god's kingdom is the service uh, servant of all but we have taken that in the christian churches and we have elevated the pastor the pastor is supposed to be the one on the bottom carrying the load and doing whatever god calls him to do it is just the opposite but we want it to be something different and so we change this and we're we're not supposed to change that you know, it came in, and again, the Catholic Church did this, but it's just because they've been around longer. If Calvary Chapel was around as long as the Catholic Church was, we would have just as many errors as they have. And so you've elevated the priest to such a point that it's like they're untouchable. 
You know, it's like the Pope. I, I, a lot of things I don't like about this Pope, but one thing I like, he's going down to Mexico, right? Now, some things he's doing down there I don't like. But one thing he is doing, he doesn't have the Pope mobile. And he's going into the most dangerous places that the previous Pope wouldn't go into. He doesn't care so much about his own life. He cares about being a witness for Christ. And I like that. And that's good. And so he is to be the servant of all. We don't want to make sure that whatever we do on the outside just puffs us up and makes us look spiritual to everybody else. It's a sign of spiritual pride. It's being puffed up and not being humbled if we elevate ourselves as far as Christ is concerned. And this is what they did with the phylacteries. If you go to Israel, you know who the observant Jews are. And there are different sects there. There's this one sect. They have this fur donut. That's all I can call it. That goes around their head. And it sticks about a foot out from their head. And they have a, a nice coat on. And some of them have a tie on. And then they have these short pants like knickers. Then they have white stockings. And it looks like little dance slippers. And you go, what on earth is that? And it just identifies them. On the Sabbath, you'll see this. It identifies them as a particular person of a particular sect, and they are particularly spiritual. And then you have the Hasidic Jews that wear the long black robes and the curls on the side of their heads and the black hats. And and you can see the tassels if they take off their overcoat and their black pants and the black shoes. And they are dressed in a particular way so everybody knows who they are. You know, Jesus didn't do any of that. Jesus just walked around like a normal person is what he did. We don't have any indication that he was dressed up like one of the priests. Who is there? And he is the greatest of all priests after the order of Melchizedek. And so we don't want to take anything in our spiritual life and lift it up so it looks to others like we are spiritual. Because we know who we are. We are sinful, right? We're just kidding everybody else around us that we are good. Give me an example of this again. If you go to Israel and you are at the afternoon prayers and we experience this, the young men, and they'll be dressed in white, and they have their little curls, and they have their yarmulkes on, and they all gather together like in a football huddle. And they're shoulder to shoulder, and they're, they're looking to the side like this, and they're getting in tighter and tighter as they're waiting for the afternoon prayer because they don't want to touch somebody who is not a Jew because it would make them unclean for their prayers. And so they have this attitude of separating themselves, don't touching it, don't touch anything of the world, any of these people. We have to remain clean and we are spiritual and we are more acceptable to God. And that's not how it works. No matter what you do on the outside to make yourself acceptable to God, God just poo-poos as if, I don't care about that. I don't care if you have curls on the side of your head. I don't care if you care if you have tassels. I don't care if you're a pastor and you wear a robe. That doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever. I don't care if you come to church and you have a tie, if you have a t-shirt on. None of that stuff matters to God. What matters to God is the heart. Does he have your heart? Now, I want you to ask yourself that question. Does God have your heart? I mean, do you think about him constantly? If you go through what we just read... God wants the heart 
of the individual. He wants the word dwelling in you richly. It's supposed to be on your lips, not written on your lower lip or your other lip or tattooed on there. You know, that would be the next step is to tattoo or in some way write on your lip. Tattoos were forbidden in the Old Testament, but write on your lip the scriptures that are there if you're going to do it literally. That's not what he's saying. He wants it to flow from your heart that has been stuffed in your mind, the scriptures, to flow out and use it to encourage others. To let them know that God has a plan for them. That this is good for them to have the scriptures on the inside. So does God have your heart? Are you in the word? Are you seeking after him? Are you becoming a disciple? Are you a radical Christian that believes in life? Are you a radical Christian that believes in heaven? That there is a God? Are you an extremist in that way? And that's what the world says, right? You extremist gun-clinging religion-following people that live in the Midwest and you're scattered throughout the country. That's how the world looks at us. I was once considered mainstream. Now I am called the far right because I believe I'm pro-life because I believe in laws, because I believe in the Ten Commandments, because I believe in order, because I don't believe in same-sex marriages. I'm a bigot and I'm a homophobe and I'm an extremist and all of that and God says oh, sounds good to me they killed me because of that right hey that's what we're supposed to do and don't be afraid to say it now use wisdom don't go up to the LGBT whatever it is up in Hillcrest or the gay pride parade and get out there and Jesus is the only way in the middle of the parade I think you're not using wisdom to do that we want to encourage people to come to christ to help them see their own depravity because we are all depraved and god can use us but not on the outside god wants it coming from the inside and the jews were guilty of this for instance in matthew chapter 6 verse 2 so when you give to the needy do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men i tell you the truth they have received the reward in full but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you and in first timothy chapter 5 even if you do these good works verse 25 tells us in the same way good deeds are obvious and even those that cannot are those that are not cannot be hidden so if you're doing good works and you seek to do it secretly which is good which is commendable before god because you don't want to lift yourself up people will eventually see and then they'll give thanks to god because of what you're doing and that's how you're supposed to act you don't stand up going this is what i'm doing for the lord <laughs> no don't do that. You know, as far as a church, like us as a church, we don't want to blow our trumpet on the works that we do. We simply give everybody an opportunity to do or to participate in the works. And we're to be humble about it. Like, we're not more special than anybody else. When we went to Bay St. Louis and we were working in Bay St. Louis with Hurricane Katrina down there, there were lots of different Christian groups. And they kept on telling us that it was only the Christians who were making a difference down there, that the government was not helping whatsoever. And they were so lame in how they were lagging on the help. And if it wasn't for the churches, people would have completely moved out of the area. They wouldn't have had anything to eat. And it was hard work going down there. But it wasn't just Calvary Chapel Lakeside or Maranatha. There were churches from across the country. And didn't boast about it. Just said, hey, it's something to do. You want to do this? You want to go? It's all good. And it was kind of low key. And that's how we're supposed to do it. We don't blow our horns and say, here we come. 
we're coming to save the day. No, you just quietly go in there and you do the good deeds and they cannot be hidden when you do this. And so with all of this, God is talking figuratively about the law on the forehead, on the back of the hand, about the word crossing the lips. Does God have your heart? If he doesn't have your heart, if you're not being submissive to him, this is the clarion call. Give your heart completely to God. Verse 11. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of the livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now this seems kind of strange. You ever break a donkey's neck? I haven't. But they couldn't sacrifice the donkey. And the re- do you guys know why they couldn't sacrifice the donkey? It was unclean. But they were still to redeem it. And they were to redeem it by offering a lamb. Now, <clears throat> were the Jews stubborn? I'll say it again. Were the Jews stubborn? Oh, they were stiff-necked people, Moses called them. You stiff-necked people. Well, maybe it was God. It was either Moses or God that said that. Just, you know, stiff-necked. No, I won't do this. They're just going to resist to the nth degree. Is a burrow or a donkey resistant? They are so resistant. Now, do you think that God may have been making a comparison? But there are other animals that are resistant, but he chose a donkey. He chose this donkey, and if you compare it to us or to the Jews that are resistant, you are unclean, you are an unworthy sacrifice in and of yourself, and you cannot be redeemed. You cannot even be sacrificed for the sake of redeeming the firstborn. It has to be a lamb who substitutes for the donkey. So what is God calling us? I'm going to say the nice word. He's calling us a donkey, right? Some would say Jack and something else, but he's calling us a donkey is what we are. And that's what the Jews were. They were stubborn. And that's the one animal he points out out of all the unclean animals. Why didn't he say a camel? You know, something like that. Camel's unclean as well. But he didn't. He talked about a donkey and you're to break its neck. In other words, sacrifice it to the Lord if you didn't redeem it with a lamb. I am right up at the top of the hour here. Okay, I'm going to stop. The lesson that I believe we're supposed to learn here, and I'll have to finish up this portion of it next week, is this idea of being spiritual on the outside. You might think that all you have to do is come to church Sunday morning. And that suffices, that you don't have to fellowship because whatever you're going through in your life. And God says, humble yourself. Do what he wants you to do in all the areas. Know the apostles' doctrine. Be involved in prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread. God says, do that. If you are a disciple, do that. Don't come up with your own spirituality and say, I'm okay. I can just do this. I can just float. And I don't have to be involved. I don't have to give anything if I don't want to. I don't have to participate if I don't want to. I'm just okay. I'm going to isolate. That's who I am. God says, don't. You will be blessed if you were doing what you're supposed to rather than having 
this reclusiveness or the opposite, having this air of superiority because you are so spiritual, so you are so involved. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Either one, I believe, is a sin in the eyes of God. You are not to pull back and you're not to be grandiose. You're not to be flippant. As In closing, there's this one pastor um, who is very flamboyant in his preaching, and I'm sure you've probably heard of him. His name is Billy Sunday. If you've ever seen pictures of him, you can look him up on the Internet. And one of his poses is where he's sticking one leg back up like this, all the way up, and he's pointing out like this to the crowd. And he would do things like that in the midst of his preaching, just very flamboyant. And people started thinking it was spiritual. And then Watchman Nee, who was kind of his sidekick, he ended up doing the same thing, just this flamboyance. We're supposed to just give the word nice and peaceable-like and make sure you guys understand it, don't go over the top, and don't be under the bottom. We need to have balance in our lives. That's my prayer for you, that you guys would have balance in your walk, that you would not be a recluse, but you would not be over the top, that people would not think of you as super spiritual because you're actually not, or they wouldn't think of you as a slug that does nothing except for leave a slime trail that everybody else has to clean up. I know that's kind of graphic, but that's the two extremes. Be right in the middle. Be involved in fellowship. Be in the Word. Do the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the examples that the Jews have left here, that uh, we understand the humility that should come with walking with you and to leave the, the grandiose Christian lifestyle and all the gaudiness that can come with that, Lord. We, we just pray that you would fill our hearts full of humility, but also full of servitude, that we'd seek the benefit of others and not seek after the benefit of ourselves. We thank you for this instruction, Lord, and we trust that you would help us to bring it to mind whenever we would bring this error upon ourselves. In Jesus' name, and the church said.